Good afternoon and welcome to this IFG live event, looking back at the five years since the EU referendum. My name is Maddie Timajak and I'm an Associate Director at the Institute for Government. The vote in favour of leaving the EU marked the start of a particularly turbulent period in British politics. The civil service had done limited contingency planning for a leave vote under the direction of David Cameron, and a lot of work still needed to be done to understand quite how integrated the UK's economy and governance structures were with the EU. When Theresa May became Prime Minister, she was keen to burnish her leave credentials, initially relying on slogans such as Brexit means Brexit, and setting out her negotiating red lines early, before truly understanding their implications for both the economy and the Union. In particular, the pivotal role Northern Ireland would play during the process was a little understood at the start. As many of you will be aware, the IFG has spent much of the last five years closely examining the process and impact of Brexit on the UK. We've sought to understand the key flashpoints in the negotiation and the consequences of the compromises needed to reach a deal. We watched countless votes in Parliament explaining what was happening and what it could mean for the Brexit process. And we've observed how the civil service responded to this mammoth task and how Brexit has changed the way government is done. We've also been closely following how the UK government and devolved administrations have, or in many cases have not, worked together on Brexit and the impact Brexit has had on support for the union across the UK. We published countless reports, explainers and comment pieces throughout the Brexit process, but today is not just about the IFG. I'm really pleased to welcome a panel who are either involved in or had front row seats to the political events of the last five years as we look back at how Brexit has impacted the governance of the UK and try to draw out some lessons as the UK moves forward outside the EU. I'm delighted to be joined by Lord Macdonald of Salford, former Permanent Undersecretary at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office from 2015 to 2020 and previously Ambassador to Germany from 2010 to 2015. I'm also joined by Luke Graham, former Conservative MP for Ockhill and South Perthshire from 2017 to 19, 2019 and then Head of the Union Unit in Number 10 until earlier this year. I'm also joined by Lisa O'Carroll, Brexit correspondent at The Guardian, who unfortunately will need to leave us a little bit early after about 45 minutes. Um, and last but not least, I'm joined by Katie Balls, Deputy Political Editor at The Spectator and Columnist at The Eye. Before we get going, just a bit of housekeeping. This event is on the record and a recording will be available afterwards. My colleague Jeremy is live tweeting the event from at IFG events, but please do tweet along with him using the hashtag IFG Brexit. We also do want to hear from you, so please send in your questions throughout the event using the chat function on your screen. If someone else has asked a question you want answered, then like it so that I know it's popular and I'll try and get through as many of them as possible. So I think we can now crack on. Um, I'd like to turn to you, Simon, first. You were a serving civil servant at the time, um, permanent undersecretary under at the Foreign Office when the referendum result came in. What was the atmosphere in the civil service like the day after the vote? Thank you, Maddie. It was as though there had been a death in the family. Um, although it's wrong to think of the civil service or the foreign office as implacably pro-EU, um, there is no disguising that most people working for the foreign office, I suspect the wider civil service, were more pro-EU than Brexit. Um, and the result for most people was an unpleasant surprise and you could feel that in the building on the 24th of June, uh, the single most dramatic day in my 38 year career. Uh, so there was grief and there was simultaneously a recognition that our key task had changed uh, and that suddenly uh, we were going to be doing something for the indefinite future which was unexpected 
um, largely unprepared for uh, and which would be overwhelming. And I mean, I sort of mentioned in my introduction about and you sort of said again, you know, the fact that there wasn't a huge amount of preparation and and actually possibly a lack of understanding of quite how integrated the EU was with the UK. Do you think that the civil service sort of was able to get to grips with that quite quickly um, or do you think it took a bit longer than maybe some had hoped? I think the civil service did get to grips with it quickly, but as you say, the relationship was so intertwined that the task was enormous. Um, so, you know, it, it and is not over yet. Um, you know, the, the, one of the um, uh, one of the uh, images in those early days that uh, lingers is uh, quoting the Eagles and. Hotel California, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And the process of departure, frankly, is still continuing. So I think the civil service responded very quickly. The civil service grew quite quickly. Um, um, and the civil service did the job you'd expect. But one other thing to mention, Addy, is that there was quite a lot of suspicion between the ministerial team and the civil service because the ministers knew that this was a group of people who'd mostly been pro-EU uh, and the idea that duty would trump personal preference was one that uh, took some ministers time to get used to. Yeah, and I remember, I mean, I think there were parliamentarians who also possibly didn't quite appreciate that. I do remember a sort of memorable hearing, I think, in front of the European Scrutiny Committee with um, Ollie Robbins. And I think they asked him whether or not he really believed in Brexit. Um, and, you know, he sort of responded, I, I'm a civil servant. You know, I deliver the, the what the government of the day wants. But no, I, I do remember that as well. I mean, if you if we sort of take, I guess, a broader look back at the last five years, I mean, do you think, think that there are any key lessons that you would draw out from it for the civil service that they can sort of either apply to other issues or, as you say, continue to grapple with the sort of impact of Brexit? One key lesson for me is the, is, uh, the trust between civil servants and ministers. I mean, I, for me, that is the foundation of uh, the way uh, the civil service was set up in the 19th century. And that was under pressure a lot of the time. I think we need that back. Um, second is, uh, and related, is um, a, a more honest discussion between the political level and civil service about what a task will need and how much resource and how much time. You know, that uh, <laughs> uh, the, the political level is very uh, focused on its agenda and delivering it as quickly as possible. But as we see, it is not always possible to do that in the desired time frame. Uh, so a recognition of that, um, a more open conversation about that, I think, would help. Yeah, and I mean, from what you said, it also strikes me that's a lesson for ministers as well. It's sort of you can't necessarily um, do that without without the other. Um, Lisa, if I if you I bring you in here, you've obviously been reporting on Brexit for the last five years. I mean, what was your experience of reporting on Brexit? What was your sort of relationship like, I guess, with, with government and trying to understand what was going on? Well, something Simon said there uh, chimed with me or resonated with me um, when he talked about the suspicion that politicians held the civil ser service in. And um, I think that has largely been not suspicion, um, but lack of engagement with The Guardian. The Tory government has not been at all interested in engaging with the constituency of our readers, which are generally remain. 
um, and were Remain and, uh, you know, thought that Brexit was a disaster. So from the get go, I have had very little access. And I think working outside the lobby has been difficult, but also has been beneficial because there are other people who want to talk. And, and you know, people in Northern Ireland, people in Ireland, people in Brussels, people in the farming communities, the fishing communities, the people, EU citizens um, who are currently um, uh, uh, feeling the consequences of it. Um, you know, it was great. I could tour the country. I could, you know, go anywhere I pleased to um, find the consequences of um, Brexit. If you're hearing a bit of noise, it's because I'm in a park and there's a school um, uh, crocodile kids. Just they're just passing. Um, so anyway, you know, um, over the last five years, there have been many interlocutors. The Brexit um, uh, ministers, the secretaries of state, David Davis, Stephen Barclay, Dominic Raab, Michael Grove. David Frost. I have had virtually no engagement, no briefing for any of them. Um, and I think that's just because it's a Tory government and they don't like The Guardian. Uh, no, it's interesting to hear your reflections. I think this is also the first time we've or had... Don't, don't care that, sorry, not that they don't like The Guardian, don't respect it. It's, you know, um, they respect freedom of uh, expression, etc. But I think they're, they're not, they, n they never saw a benefit in talking to the Guardian readership. They were looking at, you know, talking constantly to the Tory readership, um, talking to their own Brexiters, but also to try and reassure the Remainers within the Conservative um, voting community. No, that's no, it's really interesting. And I, I was going to say it's the first time I think we've had a panellist join us from a park. So <laughs> it's the first time for everything at an IFG event. Um, I mean, I was just going to ask you, I guess, briefly, you know, we, we talk about the last five years as if it was one sort of coherent period. But we know that isn't the case. You know, there was a change of prime minister premiership in the middle of that. And I know that from the work that the IFG did, we saw quite a shift in approach from particularly in terms of how uh, the government approached sort of things like no deal and things and sort of preparing for Brexit. There was a shift from Theresa May to Boris Johnson. And I wonder, Lisa, whether you observed a shift in terms of your engagement or whether, as you've said, actually just felt like it was quite consistent throughout because it was a still a Conservative government. Well, I think um, what you could say was that the Theresa May government and all the iterations of her proposals um, and her, the team that worked with her, although I've, I've never met Ollie Robbins or spoken to him, I think when it came to Northern Ireland in particular, there was a sensitivity there that did not exist with the Boris Johnson regime. I think when he did that deal with Leo Varadkar, it was like it was expedient to do to get the deal over the line and then deal with it later. And we've subsequently had, you know, anecdotal evidence that that was the approach from, you know, um, reports of what Dominic Cummings told ER, the ERG members back in January last year, just vote for it and we'll change it um, subsequently. Um, I think, the, you know, a key appointment in Northern Ireland was Julian Smith um, and he was highly rated, but, um, you know, Brandon Lewis is, is you know, doing, a, you know, a good job in a very, very difficult situation. Um, but in general, Northern Ireland has been kind of a junior ministry. It's been it, you know, it, it doesn't take priority around the cabinet table. Um, and I think that, you know, that was reflected in Boris Johnson's approach. No, that's really interesting. I think we might come on to the detail of Northern Ireland a little in a in a little bit. Um, Casey, if I can can bring you in here. I mean, you've obviously also been reporting on po politics for the last five years, and I wonder whether you share some of the same reflections as Lisa or whether you've had a different experience reporting on it. Yeah, I mean, I think Obviously, covering Brexit um, meant most of us didn't have a, a much of a life outside of work for quite a long time because it really reflected how unpredictable the situation became and quite quickly how unpredictable. You already had, as I think has been outlined by some of the other panellists, a really daunting task in front of the government 
partly due to lack of pre-preparation, but also just because uh, the two sides were so close, there was so much work to do. But then it became so much more complicated because of domestic politics, party politics, and ultimately the 2017 staff election, which suddenly meant that you went from almost, you know, difficult task to having one hand tied behind your back. And uh, I mean, some might even say two at some point. And, and all of a sudden, when you were covering it, you're covering two negotiations. So there's the negotiation with the EU, but the negotiation I spent most of my time writing about was the negotiation with the Tory Parliamentary Party. You could throw in the DUP to that um, sometimes, and that took up so much of our time. So as we are now, uh, I suppose, in this new phase, having left the EU, but also uh, you know, looking at the Northern Ireland Protocol, it's a very different experience to cover it because there is so much less in the way of the commons drama doesn't mean the situation has become simpler or less serious, but it just feels a very different atmosphere. And I think it got very fraught. So uh, you're writing about policy and you're writing about, uh, you know, alignment, diversion. But at the same time, you're also uh, not cancelling, but you are speaking to many, you know, grieving, angry, upset people on a daily basis. Um, for various reasons and I think by the end of that parliament it felt very different and you saw a complete realignment too in the sense of you know switching of parties and I think it just changed uh, so much about probably what some of the parties now represent if you look at the Conservative Party and Labour I think we're still living with really significant consequences as a result of the referendum result but, but I think largely influenced actually by that 2017 staff election. No, that's really interesting. And actually, just as you were speaking, one thing I'd be interested to get your reflections on, Simon, is, you know, your experience of running the diplomatic service during a period of time when presumably quite a lot of the rest of the world is looking at the UK and wondering what on earth is going on. And when it sort of the government was so consumed by those domestic politics. I mean, how did you sort of try and approach that and again, manage those relationships externally, but also motivate, motivate your staff to actually sort of be able to go out and represent the UK internationally? Uh, two points, uh, Maddie. Uh, first is that in most of the world beyond Europe, uh, they paid attention, but they didn't think this was centrally interesting. And there was a, a repeated assessment from many colleagues that out there, other governments thought there must be a plan. It's the United Kingdom and they will have something in mind and it will work out in the end because it's the United Kingdom. So across, you know, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, people were pretty sanguine because they thought there was a plan. In Europe, it was different. Um, in Europe, uh, the main message uh, from our embassies was you've got to focus on Brussels. Uh, the Commission is our spokesman. And if you think this is going to be a negotiation uh, with 27, you're wrong. You have to focus on the Commission. Uh, and they were consistent about that throughout the negotiation. Yeah, I think that's something that I think um, sort of quite a few people have been critical of, of the UK government for essentially sort of thinking that they did have, they could try and sort of divide and conquer rather than recognising that the commission was so central. And I think that's, it's sort of interesting to hear that was very much the message that you were also um, receiving. Um, if we, I mean, so Katie, you, you've already sort of talked a bit about um, the parliament, you know, 2017-19 parliament. And Luke, I mean, you were a member of that parliament. It would be quite interesting, I think, to hear about what it felt like to be part of that and sort of, you know, how 
Well, from the outside, it looked impossible. I mean, did it feel like that when you, when you were inside? Well, I think the prominence of Brexit really increased. I mean, when we went from you know, the doorsteps in 2017, Brexit was mentioned, but it wasn't really a deciding factor in a lot of people's votes. And certainly, I think for that first almost year in Parliament, and certainly before the, the presentation of the first, uh, or the discussion about the meaningful vote and the first deal, um, Brexit really was secondary. There were other policies. You know, as a new MP, uh, especially because the balance of power was held by Scottish MPs as well, uh, there was a lot of excitement about what could be done to improve and strengthen the union and look at a lot of other policy solutions. So it, um, you know, it, it turned from kind of a, a parliament of, of excitement, uh, certainly from a Scottish perspective, um, to then, you know, almost a parliament of horror uh, as you went into, you know, the, the series of meaningful votes, you started to, you know, different elements of the party started to, to fracture um, as there was a disagreement about how Brexit was uh, being carried out. Also, obviously, you know, it would be, um, I think, naive not to think that there were other, you know, leadership forces and other things at work there as well. Um, and I think simultaneously, you had the, the DUP, which were obviously under a confidence and supply motion, but decided that, you know, actually the, the backstop, you know, somehow there was a better way to it, or even having a second referendum would be preferable uh, to having that deal. Uh, and unfortunately, I, I don't think they necessarily foresaw the fact that actually there would be no second referendum and you would end up with the situation that we have at the moment, because there's only so many ways uh, the Northern Ireland question could be cut um, and so many ways that could be approached. So it did become very, very difficult. And I have to say, you know, as a as a new parliamentarian, you know, in two and a half years, I remember sitting next to Ken Clark one one late night vote and I said, um, Ken, this must be just as bad as Maastricht. And he said he laughed and said, no, no, it is much worse. Um, and uh, I think you know, that, you know, especially from a new MP's point of view, really shapes the, the experience of that parliament uh, and, and really took a lot of the oxygen out of other policy areas uh, and other strategies that we were hoping to implement. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting that you what you said about being a new MP and actually sort of I know one of the things just referring back to the civil service that um, I've talked about with colleagues is all these sort of new junior civil servants who've essentially been in crisis mode for the last four years and don't quite know what normal looks like. And I think that must have been the case for those MPs in Parliament who, who are new and sort of thought, well, is this just what it's like? Um, whereas obviously it's sort of not necessarily. I mean, I would be interested um, in your reflections, particularly because then you sort of moved into government on how you think or whether you think that the relationship between government and parliament has changed sort of more from a long-term perspective as a result of Brexit or whether you think that sort of what was going on then was very much a result of the sort of specific circumstances that parliament and government was grappling with. I, I think um, it has changed but I think that's more to do with the majority uh, rather than actually Brexit itself. Uh, you know when you're in a minority government especially when you're a you know a, a backbencher or, or PPS representing you know part of the country that's effectively holding the balance of power obviously your engagement with government would be very different to one of the backbenchers now in the current kind of 80 majority um and so i think we had a lot more access and i was i was privileged to be ppsing david lillington who gave me a lot more access to to government and civil service much more insight than i think a lot of in normal times junior ministers would have got so i i think it's the majority that really dictated the relationship between parliament and government more than the actual issue itself. Uh, no, that's really, really interesting. Katie, I might turn to you and ask whether you will you agree with Luke's assessment or or sort of what your perspective is on how Brexit may or may not have shifted the relationship between government and parliament? Well, I think it's been an interesting one. 
So I'm paranoid I'm on mute, but... No, you're fine. I'll, I'll tell you if you're on mute. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the course, I mean, I think we're still seeing the impact of how uh, the relationship with the government at the time in Parliament, uh, you know, played out through Brexit. Um, and you can see it almost in the choice of speaker. I think there are a few ways we can now see it. Um, but clearly we saw several constitutional crises and, and challenges in terms of that and various votes and you had a situation obviously uh, you know you almost lose track of the level of commons drama there was but I suppose you know if we're skipping back and forth in time when you ultimately had MPs taking over the commons you almost had government by remote control because the government did not have a workable majority uh, you had Boris Johnson leaning into that because uh, by suspending MPs in his own party he was sending a message to the public ahead of an election he was trying to get and eventually got. So lots of people were using Parliament in a way that I don't think uh, when people first go into Brexit they would they would have imagined and for their own means. And I think that you can see in part, I think, the frustrations that Boris Johnson faced when he was trying to, you know, avoid another extension. I think there was an acceptance once Boris Johnson's team that actually they might not be able to, you know, deliver on his promise in that Tory leadership election. Because if you remember what Boris Johnson did, which separated him from some of the other candidates, was to say, you know, no matter what, we will not be, you know, delaying again. There will be no Article 50 extension. And at the time, it's, well, that's impossible to do. Now, I think that the realists around him, perhaps Boris Johnson deep down, knew that, you know, ultimately didn't have the numbers that there could well be another extension but by throwing everything at it and doing everything possible you still manage to change the perception and um, but I think in terms of going through that and seeing how the Commons acted I think has probably added to I don't know, the sense now where you have a number 10 that doesn't uh, particularly pay that much attention to Parliament. I think that if you look at a uh, recent comments from Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, uh, you know, suggesting that Boris Johnson mis misled the House on the lockdown announcement and Number 10's response, which is that they're not particularly worried, I do think that there is a sense that some of the seeds to this were sown in those, you know, very difficult months and is when you had a Tory government that felt as low, uh, you know, MPs, but also John Burko at the time, were bending the rules to suit them. And I think that even though the Speaker has now changed, and Lindsay Hoyle was ultimately picked but, um, as supported by some Tory MPs because he was seen as the opposite of John Burko, someone who would fix that. Now, realising that perhaps in terms of the pandemic, they're having problems of their own there, um, but like is picked as the opposite figure. I think it probably has hardened this sense that Number 10 can, in their view, I think, get away with consulting the Commons fewer times. Um, and uh, I think there's lots of reason to suggest that it isn't a positive development, but I, I do think it can be linked in some form. No, that's really that's really interesting um, to sort of hear your reflections on, on that. And, and I think that, I mean, I think one thing, I guess one, one question or sort of follow up comment is we have those seen that some Conservative backbenchers in particular have exercised sort of more, potentially more uh, not control, but they've influenced over number 10 than maybe they might have done in the past. And we have seen there's been pressure on the government, particularly around COVID restrictions. And I wonder whether there is something in the fact that MPs maybe take their backbench role more seriously than maybe they have done before. But I do agree with you, Katie, about the sort of um, potential disregard for Parliament that we're seeing from this government. I mean, one thing just to pick up on what you mentioned earlier, actually, about 
the sort of changing nature of the parties. I was struck by, I think there was a poll, I think it might have been in the eye actually, about how the country sort of remains divided on Brexit. But one of the things that we did see in the 2019 election is that particularly in the Conservative Party, you know, there was a sort of move to say, to say, you know, any of those sort of possibly more moderate Remainer Conservative MPs sort of a lot of them stood down or they ran or a couple of them ran as independents, lost their seats. There's obviously been a, a shift within the Conservative Party. We see Labour very unwilling to talk about Brexit. I mean, do you think that that division has shifted then in terms of the political parties that actually parliamentarians aren't split in the same way that they were in that parliament? And yeah, Katie, I guess I'd be interested in your view on that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're split in the same way. I think that's partly though also because Brexit isn't such a live issue anymore. Not to say it's all closed. Um, there's obviously lots of, uh, you know, ramifications and things going on, but it's no longer such a common issue. And I think there's also quite a lot of MPs who'd be quite happy if they never had to talk about Brexit ever again. Um, who, but there's others who I think, I mean, and I think it has changed the Tory electoral coalition. So I think one is less of a live issue. So those MPs, those, you know, there still are MPs in the One Nation group. Um, lots of them did leave, to be honest. Um, like, but, you know, people like Damien Green can live with this version of Brexit, obviously also supported Theresa May. But, you know, people who I think might have been uncomfortable with some of the rhetoric from Boris Johnson in the early stages um, find it much easier to be in this party now because uh, ultimately the issue feels like it has moved on. But I also think there is a sense that the party has shifted in terms of what it's about and it has become more of a definitively Brexit party. You saw that because they're trying to fix um, some of the issues they had earlier on. So in the 2019 election, every single MP had to say they would vote for this deal. Um, and I think just going through various steps like that uh, means that you do get rid of some get rid of some of the anxiety. So it feels much calmer. I also think if you look at where the Tory party made um, you know, gains, so the Red Wall, as it has come to be known in, in many pieces, um, these people do think Brexit is what cracked it for them. Obviously, there are other factors. The fact the party's higher spends, I think Jeremy Corbyn may have helped in some areas, but predominantly, uh, I think if you speak to Red Wall MPs, they think the antics of the past parliament in terms of you know, not listening to that vote or you know, back and forth, lots of um, uh, you know, frustrating, uh, as some would put it, uh, in terms of delivering it, ultimately helped them eventually win their seat because they could say, well, Labour's not listening to you. What's Labour doing on it? And I think therefore you have some Tory MPs, I think probably more the One Nation ones in the Blue Wall, who'd be quite happy not to talk about Brexit. But then actually, I think Boris Johnson, and we've seen hints of this, be very happy to talk about Brexit for quite a lot longer. And lots of these MPs would too in the new intake, because ultimately it is important to their new electoral co coalition. And therefore, they've managed to uh, make uh, Brexit something which they think is still a vote winner today. Um, so Keir Starmer, I don't think, would, to, would want to go anywhere near it um, because it's still difficult for Labour. But I think if Boris Johnson can, in the next election, talk about Brexit, he will. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, and actually brings us on to quite nicely to some of the questions that are coming through. Um, there's one from um, Ron Martian who says, will Brexit ever really be done? Um, and he says, of course, the UK is no longer a, um, a member, but the consequences are not being accepted. Discussions could go on and on. Is it possible future government could rejoin without a referendum or would they succeed in a referendum? I think I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, on, on the question of whether Brexit ever been, will ever be done, Lisa, I wonder if I can come to you and get your reflections on whether you think, um, as I say, Brexit will ever be done. 
Yeah, yeah, that question neatly reminds me of uh, Newsnight last night. They interviewed a couple of musicians who are facing this challenge of um, touring in Europe, which um, um, has been caused by Brexit, the requirements for visas that didn't exist anymore. Um, and I think, you know, the Brexit that, it's, that is done is essentially the withdrawal agreement, which gives certain protections to two big areas, Northern Ireland and EU citizens. And outside of that, the trade deal is something that will be constantly, constantly revisited because there are areas of it that are... are um, fundamentally, probably, um, they weren't thought through, and this, you, you know, the thing that's facing musicians and artists and um, actors and actresses works both ways. Um, and I think there will be pressure to revisit that. Um, we have seen over the last few years, and what Katie was talking about, about people wanting to talk about Brexit. My big question would be, well, what does Brexit mean to them? Because outside Westminster. There is deep frustration in all the, the sectors that you talk to, the Food and Drink Federation, the NFU, um, EU citizens, uh, transport, road hauliers, um, sheep farmers, fishery communities, that the government hasn't listened to them and they're feeling the consequences every day. And were there not a pandemic, I think this would be, you know, would be headline news. We wouldn't have press conferences every day, but we would be seeing this on the, on the news. You know, the figures that we've seen in the last few months have been quite staggering. There was a report analysing the um, how much the economy has shrunk um, because of Brexit, and it put it at um, 110 billion in exports. There was a report today from scientists saying that they lost out on 1.5 billion in funding because of the uncertainty over Brexit funding, which wasn't, you know, was agreed in the end that the, the UK would be an associate member of Horizon Europe or Horizon 2020, but that, that deal came on the 24th of December, by which time scientists had, you, you know, um, long put together their consortia, which in the past would have been in the majority led by UK scientists. Um, so, um, yeah, to come back to the question, will Brexit ever be done? No, but the question is, what does Brexit mean? Um, I think it will segue very, very quickly into what is a future relationship between the UK and the EU? And it'll be it'll be normalised. And I think the word Brexit will slowly fade from our lexicon. Yeah, no, that's interesting and interesting to sort of think about what Katie was saying about how Brexit can be quite a useful tool for Boris Johnson. But as you say, Lisa, possibly um, you don't necessarily want to draw attention to all of the consequences. So it'll be interesting to see how that manifests. Luke, I think you wanted to come in as well on that question. Yeah, I just think it's a lot of points that Lisa raised there, you know, about some of the costs and implications of Brexit. I think they, they are being worked through. You've seen that government obviously has set up a lot of task forces to address that, whether that's in fishing, whether that's in farming, the Trade Commission as well, that is obviously all the farming unions are part of. So I think it is there. I think the difficulty politically here is that, I mean, these are all the concerns that were voiced in the referendum. They're voiced in all the years kind of subsequent to that as well. But it didn't change public opinion. You know, it didn't change people kind of shifting them to vote for Brexit or not. And I think that's the one thing that we, you know, looking forward, certainly the line I always have as an MP and certainly government and going forward is that if we have these kind of referenda and we have them out, we have to then show that we absolutely are going to follow what people say to us. It's the same uh, commitment that we made in the 2014 referendum in Scotland. You know, I watched those votes come in uh, in September 2014 and I knew that if yes won, I wouldn't get a second referendum. It didn't matter what the terms and how community would be because we just spent a heck of a long time talking about how costly it would be. So people weren't ignorant. You know, there's lots of facts out there. People made a choice. And I think it's really important for democracy 
that we show that actually this stuff really matters. And I think next time there, if there is a, another referendum about any topic in the United Kingdom, I think people are going to really look at it very, very seriously. That they know there's no kind of second referendum or coming back from it. They know that once they made a choice, that's it. We move forward and the government and the civil service follows that choice. I think, I mean, I guess one to, to sort of uh, challenge, I guess, is, is that I don't, I think this is one of the problems that the civil service had, but also Theresa May had when she first came in, was that there wasn't a clear blueprint from Vote Leave about what Brexit would look like. And that was why we sort of ended up stuck for quite a long time. And I guess I wonder whether there's a sort of lesson in that as well, in terms of if you are talking about a different future, whether there needs to be a bit more of a clearer understanding of what that different future looks like. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Luke, or, or whether you wouldn't. I, I think it's I think it's important to have a clear prospectus. But I mean, if you if you look again at 2014, you know, there was a, a several hundred page white paper the SNP put out at the time. But if you go into most of the propositions put forward there, they were utterly you know utter rubbish. You know, we'll set up a welfare state within 18 months. Uh, they haven't even been able to take on devolved welfare powers that were given in 2016. They pushed that out to 2024, so that they couldn't even take you know, base devolved powers in eight years, and that's supported by central government. So again, you know, we, we can ask for more information, we can put it forward, but at the end of the day, I mean, this is what leadership is about, and this is what politicians' job really should be, is defining vision, uh, defining strategy, and then you know, leading people towards where they want to go. Uh, as with any government, I mean, look at the manifestos that elected this government and the last few governments, to be fair, they weren't huge kind of detailed documents. They are much more kind of vision, mission statements uh, with some key commitments. Uh, and, you know, and this is what people decide to, to vote for. So I, I think that there should always be a, a big challenge from the media. There should be a big challenge from think tanks and others to get politicians to define in as much detail as possible. But in the end, the people do this, uh, you know, decide and then politicians need to lead on the back of that to really then come up with that vision and detail it out. Uh, that's that's interesting and we might come on to talk about another possible future referendum later on in the chat. Um, Simon I've got a question here that I wanted to put to you Um it's from John Pete and he's he said he said Switzerland first began negotiating its relationship with the EU in 1994. 20 years on it is still locked in negotiation. Is the UK destined similarly to near permanent negotiation with its largest neighbour? And I remember that being quite a debate when we first saw the deal uh, around Christmas was, is this Switzerland or is it Canada? You know, are we looking at constant negotiation or can can we sort of forget about the deal and get on with things? I mean, from your your view, what, where do you think we've landed on that? Constant negotiation. Uh, I note that uh, the Swiss model is is not available to us. The EU doesn't like it. They think that they conceded too much. And so the EU is, is not using Switzerland as a possible template for the United Kingdom. But still, we will be in constant negotiation because as Lisa and others have said, there's there are just too many issues that were either not addressed or were unsatisfactorily addressed in um, uh, the agreements and they will need to be revisited. And there's another question, actually, which I will also come back to you, um, which actually I was also going to ask you is, you know, I mean, Global Britain obviously is one of the big sort of painted as one of the big wins from Brexit. Um, Francis D'Souza has asked about, you know, whether what 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 is the UK's role possibly internationally for the next five to ten years? You know, where where can the UK show leadership? But also, I guess I was interested as well as how much of an impact the relationship the UK manages to sort of maintain with the EU, how much of an impact that will have on the UK's ability to sort of be a world leader in, in, in key areas? Three points. Uh, 
first of all, as I've already hinted, for much of the world, our membership of the EU was incidental to our relationship with them. They didn't think of us principally as an EU power. Uh, they thought of us as the United Kingdom. The relationship goes way be behind the Treaty of Rome or our accession in 73. And so, you know, if you're in India or China or Japan, it's it's not a big as big a deal as it feels in um, Europe. But one power for whom our membership of the EU was absolutely centrally relevant was the United States. And the United States uh, thought of the UK, told us that we were sort of a bridgehead into Europe that the fact that uh, a very close, reliable ally was in the EU uh, made us more interesting to the United States because the relationship with us uh, had um, a sort of um, a cascade effect with relationships across the European continent. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, that's up for grabs. So my third point is um, we have to be smart about our agenda. I think we can uh, lead a world debate uh, if we're saying sensible and persuasive things. And the most obvious uh, agenda for us right now is climate and the fact that we are co-chairing COP26 with the Italians in November, I think is very important to our international standing this year. Uh, that's interesting. And I mean, one of the you, you mentioned the US and obviously one of the issues that the US has sort of expressed um, concern about is Northern Ireland and the implementation of the protocol there. Um, I'm Lisa, I know you're going to have to go in a minute, so I'm going to come to you first and then Simon, I might also come back to you on that as well. Um, I mean, obviously, Northern Ireland and the protocol has become so central to the discussion around Brexit and there are still issues around implementation. There was it seems like there's going to be an agreement around sausage meat between the UK and the EU, but there are clearly other issues still to be resolved. From your sort of reporting, Lisa, I mean, how how much of a how much of a problem has that been on the ground in Northern Ireland in terms of being so central and being sort of so caught up in this Brexit debate? I was struggling there to see if I was uh, unmuted. Um, give me a summary of that question, Maddie. Well, it was really what just... What's it on the ground? Yeah, what, what, what's it been like on the ground in, in Northern Ireland and, and sort of the political consequences of being so sort of caught up in the bigger Brexit debate? You, of all the things that I think you could list um, as a consequence of Brexit, one of the most unfortunate things is what's happened in Northern Ireland. There was never a way to square that circle. And I think the way this government has handled Northern Ireland is um, has been problematic and has been damaging. And I think you can be party pre, you can obviously take sides with um, parties that uh, are conservative like yourselves. But in Northern Ireland, you can't do that. You've got to look at Northern Ireland as a whole. It is a unique um, country within the UK. It has a contested past. So, you know, there's a saying there that, you know, that, that words, you know, talk can cost lives. Um, it's a dangerous place to, to play politics. And I think you know, Sefcovic was Mar Mar Sefcovic, the European Vice President, um, who is dealing with Brexit, was in town last week, and he gave the press a, a, about an hour of his time. He, he walked us through what had happened over the last year and um, over the protocol, and talked about back in March how he had, uh, this is last year, had spoken to Michael Gove and said, "Are you absolutely sure you're going to be able to do these checks? This is the first time we've ever outsourced checks." Oh no, I think. 
we might have lost Lisa. I'll give her one more moment. I think we might have lost her. I'm very sorry, everyone. I know that she had charged up her laptop, but it might have just died. Um, so I, I will, I think Lisa was making a really important point there um, about the sort of politics and, and the sensitivity of Northern Ireland. One of the questions I was going to ask you, Simon, was on, on the question of the US is how much of a barrier do you think Northern Ireland will be in terms of, for example, straight, striking a trade agreement or just having positive relations with the US? Is Do you think that this will end up being a sort of problem in the broader, the UK sort of broader geopolitical aims or, or not? I mean, from, your, from where you're sort of looking at things. I think uh, Northern Ireland is a critically important to the uh, issue to the US at all times, uh, especially so for this president, only the second president to uh, be Roman Catholic, to identify as Irish. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's close to the top of the agenda. But the idea that problems over Northern Ireland are going significantly to complicate uh, a trade deal I don't buy because the trade deal with the United States is complicated and lengthy in any case. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the whole tendency of US politics uh, in the last few years has been more protectionist. So if um, that uh, uh, negotiation goes slowly, uh, I do not think Northern Ireland is the explanation. No, that's, that's really interesting. I see that we have managed to have Lisa back with us. So I will let Lisa finish off the point that you were making uh, very, very, very eloquently. Yes. OK, great. And I was just going to, you know, just reiterate what most people know, but people don't really think about it a lot, that politics in Northern Ireland is really, really complex. And you have to be sensitive to all communities. That, that's not just the two extremes of green and orange. It's all those in between. It's those people who are looking for more liberal politics, uh, equality for women, over abortion, over homosexuality, etc. Um, throw Brexit into that and you're basically stoking you're stoking a kind of um, something that you don't really want to want to stoke. And I think what we got from Sefcovic to go back to the point was that he had a kind of working relationship with Michael Gove and that he specifically said that when David Frost came in, that um, he, do you remember, he uh, pulled the chain on on the, the protocol one week into his new role. And Sefcovic said he got word of that just hours before he had his first call with Sefcovic, with, with David Frost. That's not very good politics. And in Northern Ireland, not good politics has consequences. I was going to actually, I mean, the role of uh, Lord Frost is, is a sort of interesting one there. And I was going to actually ask Katie your, your view on, you know, Lord Frost's approach to negotiations with the EU in quite a hardline way. Do you think that's something that's got sort of support in the Conservative Party? How, how concerned do you think, and I might, Luke, I might ask you the same question, is how concerned do you think that the Conservative Party is about what is going on in Northern Ireland um, and, and are they sort of supportive of the government's possibly more confrontational approach under Lord Frost on these issues? I think this is probably where we go back to different audiences and also I think a question of whether if you think about the first stage of the actual negotiation um, you had a situation where the UK had a domestic audience it was playing to because it wanted to get AMPs and then also voters on the side and I think that um, the fact a deal was eventually agreed is seen as vindication by David Frost that these tactics paid off. 
I think we have a situation now where a similar approach, confrontational, much more confrontational than Michael Gove. I think that if you, uh, you know, some of it to me, Michael Gove's approach is very, you know, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. I think David Frost is more <laughs> relaxed about the vinegar. Um, but you have a situation where uh, now David Frost is in charge and you're getting lots of op-eds in UK uh, publications, lots of the publications being on the right. Um, and a big effort to, again, play to that domestic audience bit. Now, clearly, everyone in Brussels is going to read these, um, but you can, you can see what's happening there. And I think that it does have a lot of support in the Tory party. I think that Tory MPs really like to see what David Frost is doing. I think they have faith in him because of what came before. And I think that also it goes back to that point I made earlier about the fact that there are plenty of Tory MPs who would like to keep talking about Brexit. I think David Frost reflects what they'd like to say about Brexit. Lisa was talking about, you know, the things that we less good to talk about. Well, I think actually this talking tough of Brussels is seen as helpful. But I think where there is some questions, I think they are quietly asked is, given we have left, given this is now about finding a workaround, is the same approach really the one that should be being pushed right now? And I think there are a few doubts, um, actually, if you speak to uh, figures within government, and they're not ones that, you know, it's not a public uh, row you're about to see. There are some concerns that actually this is perhaps a little bit self-defeating, or is going to make the job of what you actually needed harder by drawing attention to all these problems publicly. Are you actually bringing EU leaders on the side or are you getting their backs up? I think it's probably, I mean, a little bit too early to tell, because clearly we hear from them that the backs are, you know, being up and, and uh, lots in Brussels are I'm not enjoying David Frost style in the slightest, but that's not, that's fairly, you know, expected. I think the question is, does it lead to results? We've obviously seen a little sign of, you know, uh, compromise, some agreement being found in terms of these checks. But I think there is concern over David Frost tax, not from the Tory party. I just think some in government worry um, whether this is the right way to go. I think Boris Johnson, though, is very supportive of David Frost. And in terms of who he listens to, I think that David Frost is very high up there. I think the fact that when they were organising the Australia trade deal, and David Frost likes to say that he is, you know, Minister for the Opportunities of Brexit, that's how he wants to say his role is. The fact in that dinner, number 10 minutes finalised, it was Boris Johnson and David Frost, I think tells you a lot about, um, you know, how his stock is high. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know, Lisa, you wanted to come back. I'm also, Simon, just to, to let you know, I'm going to come to you and ask you about how you think things are going down in Brussels um, on, on some of those issues. Um, Lisa, sorry, you wanted to come in. Yeah, just before I go, just to pick up a very good point that Katie made there um, in relation to styles. Um, you, I, I can remember speaking to Lord Canoole, uh, who's the chair of one of the Lord's committees um, early on in the year, um, and they were very concerned about um, uh, scrutiny in Parliament with the Brexit committee gone and the various committees in the House of Lords gone. Um, and he made this point that, you know, the problem with spats is with two sides like this, you always have to come back to the negotiating table. So on the Lord Frost and the Sausage War, we had a situation in early March where the EU were going to extend that grace period and there was no need to pull the plug. Um, they were going to arrive there. Um, and we think that they're going to arrive there in the next few days again, um, and there'll be this breathing space. But, you know, there's kind of this drive on the English side, I think, or in the Lord Frost team to, you know, to have a victor, which, you know, to Katie's point, plays to the, the, the domestic audience and to the party. Um, but in the end, both sides have got to, they've got to work together. And to the point I made originally, it's not so much Brexit anymore, it's about the future relationship between the EU and UK and it will have to settle down. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you very much, Lisa, for joining thank us. You. I'll, I'll let you head off. Um, but um, Luke, you wanted to come come in and then Simon, I'll come to you. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's important to know, I mean, in negotiation, there's always two parties. And all I would say is that, you know, the EU is not some soft, reasonable, you know, completely objective party to negotiate with. I mean, again, as an MP, I remember one of the big European nations inviting me and several colleagues to a meeting with their ambassador where they told us um, for almost two hours that there was going to be a second referendum. And I had to speak very, and bear in mind, I was the director of finance of the Remain campaign, right? I'm not some big Brexiteer. Um, but I had to explain to them that there would be no second referendum. They needed to believe us and engage with us meaningfully now to try and get the best conclusion. So I think, you know, you will evolve your tactics over time, as Katie already says, it's, it's you looking at your toolkit and using the right tool at the right time. And I think, you know, some of the, the harder nose tactics were needed to a certain extent to really show the UK's intent and that we weren't going to just go for a second referendum and back away from that. But obviously now as we go into a lot more detail and there's a lot more nuance some of these uh, much more complicated and operational issues and that's where actually we need to look at the toolkit and look at what else we can do to find the best possible solution for people and citizens and businesses on the ground and so i think that will have you know i think that's what parliamentarians will be looking for as well as what's the best kind of outcome um well of course there will always be you know the press will always want to have a uh, a winner and a loser yeah, that's, that's a, it's a good point, I think. Um, I mean, Simon, yeah, I sort of wanted to ask you, I guess, about how you think those tactics might be going down in Brussels. But also, again, the sort of the big the big issue at the moment that we can see in the UK-EU relationship is the implementation of the protocol. How serious do you think that is in terms of undermining the broader cooperation between the UK and the EU? I mean, you talked about COP, and that's a sort of good opportunity to show Italy and the UK co-hosting, and, and there might be other ways they can work together. But I say sort of, I guess, two two questions to you. So one on sort of tactics and approach, but also I think this question about the broader that sort of direction um, for the UK-EU relationship. Um. They don't, they dislike the tactics of Lord Frost and the government, and they're not used to them. Um, uh, the EU uh, is used to calling the shots in relationships where they are the larger party and the other side is smaller. Um, but we're not so small that we have to take it. Uh, and as I say, that is um, uh, unusual in their experience. Um, but it's it's also important to remember that the EU in its dislike of this is being reinforced by a lot of British commentary uh, because, yes, they do read uh, lots of the British media. And so uh, there's a lot of uh, British media that reinforce the EU's idea that what we're doing is uh, unreasonable. <laughs> so they they're not feeling particular pressure to flex their style. Uh, but the fact that this government is, is very consistently um, uh, uh, hard nosed, if you like, um, it may, I guess the government's hope is that over time that will get the EU to uh, reconsider. But other key points uh, at this juncture is to point out that um, the EU is not a neutral player in our future success. Um, you know, the UK leaving the EU was uh, a grievous insult and body blow to the EU. Uh, they strategically 
need to show, I believe, that leaving the EU was a bad choice for the United Kingdom. Uh, so, um, you know, it's uh, there's something in it for them to keep the relationship difficult and complicated and to have us carry the can for that. Uh, so I think that is one of the things going on in the background and not so much in the background because uh, President Macron has a really difficult re-election campaign next year. And the uh, opponent, um, who uh, until last weekend he thought was the most difficult opponent, was um, uh, Marine Le Pen. Uh, so, you know, Macron being able to demonstrate the unwisdom of a hostile policy towards the EU is electorally helpful to him. I think that's a very good reminder that it's not just about uh, domestic politics in the UK that matters. It's also domestic politics in EU member states. And we shouldn't forget that when we're sitting um, sitting here. Um, I promised that we would talk a little bit about the union. So I am going to do that in the last sort of, well, I think we've got about seven or so minutes. Um, I think that I think most people would agree that actually what's possibly ended up being the, the biggest impact of Brexit is is the, the sort of possible breakup of the UK, you know, however many years down the line. I think, you know, the the um, the independence referendum in Scotland was obviously a sort of once in a generation vote. But as soon as the EU referendum happened, Nicola Sturgeon sort of used it as an opportunity to say that things have changed and actually Scotland needs another vote. And we've already talked a bit about Northern Ireland and there are obviously questions about how Brexit will play out there in the future as well. Now, Luke, you obviously ran the union unit in number 10. Um, I guess I would be interested in how you sort of think the current state of play is going. Do you know what, what, are, you, how, what are your sort of chances, I guess, of, of the union surviving at this stage? And what, what advice um, would you be giving about how to try and um, uh, sort of keep the union together? Sure. I mean, I, I just start by saying that I mean, where we are today has been a long time coming. You know, the, the obviously the 2014 referendum really increased the support for, for separation. Uh, Brexit gave it a little bit more oxygen. But the kind of the, the foundation for this kind of desperate feeling and the kind of peeling away of Scotland from, from the rest of the UK has been almost 20 years in the making. I mean, the asymmetric way that devolution was established and the devolve and forget attitude in Whitehall I think has really created a, a serious structural and cultural problem, which is one that you know in Parliament and also in government we were trying to address because it simply got to the point where you know most of the civil servants in Whitehall just presumed that their job was to legislate and, and administer for England, uh, and anything that was devolved should be hands off. Just give some money to devolved administrations when that's not really how ever devolution was meant to work. Uh, and so what you've seen over you know the past eighteen months or so is a change in you know a shift, um, a, a real leaning forward by you know Whitehall uh, to the DAs, uh, in, in some ways working directly with, which is what the Internal Market Act was about, working directly um, with DAs, but also with local authorities and other businesses and groups within the devolved nations. Um, and then also looking at trying to refine and get some more transparency to the structures of government, which I know the intergovernmental review is still being negotiated between the different parts, but. I'm very hopeful that out of that there'll have be a transparent structure so we can give the kind of transparency that you have and, and although we're not a federal model but give the transparency that you can teach in classrooms and in boardrooms that like you have in Australia and the United States 
although those models are obviously continuously evolving. So it's been, you know, this kind of, this feeling I think has been a long time coming. I think Brexit did give a lot more oxygen to, to nationalists in Scotland, in Wales and in Northern Ireland. But as we've seen through COVID, I mean, after we got through the kind of the separation of message, uh, you know, last year, as we've kind of realigned, as we've gone through the vaccine, you've seen the different parts of the UK and the devolved health response now being uh, more kind of coordinated and coherent. You've seen actually support for separation start to fall off. And, you know, there's been a, a run of, uh, of polls in Scotland that have shown actually you know, there isn't that over 50% support for for another uh, separation referendum. So it's not one for you know, to take for granted. I think the fact the SNP didn't get a majority gives some breathing room uh, for all unionist parties, not just Conservative, but Labour, Liberal Democrat, everyone else, to really you know, think again about actually how do we showcase what's positive about the UK? This isn't just about, you know, yes, branding and things are part of it, but actually it's really showing what are the social, cultural, infrastructural, scientific, you know, uh, military world, the great ties that bring us together to show that the United Kingdom is such a great country where you can be comfortable and happy having multiple identities, you know, supporting Scotland in rugby, England in football, and then, you know, the Lions and uh, team, you know, team GB or UK when it comes to the Olympics. I think that's what we've really got to aspire to. And that's what we've got to drive policy and thinking to, um, to really defeat nationalism in the long term. Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a beautiful vision that you sketch out for us there. Um, on, I mean, on on the sort of approach from the UK government. So we uh, today actually published a report about the UK internal market, and we have described the UK's approach so far as being more about sort of competition rather than collaboration with the devolved administrations. Now you might disagree with my uh, with my sort of characterization of it, but I mean, do you think there is a way that do you think, because obviously there is a political sort of tension at the heart of this, I mean, do you think there is a way that, that um, the UK government can be more collaborative with the devolved administrations rather than possibly sort of trying to compete in key areas and demonstrate, oh, this is a British flag on it, therefore, you know, is British government money and, and sort of some of the, the policy suggestions that have been coming out. I mean, do you think there is a way for collaboration to be at the core of this rather than necessarily that comp competitive element? Absolutely. And I mean, common frameworks are an example of, of that. But but this has got to cut both ways, right? You can't have a central government saying we want to collaborate. And then you have a nationalist first minister in Scotland whose outright you know, objective is to destroy the UK. So, you know, you, you can be you central government can be as collaborative as it wants. But when it comes to the crunch and civil service, I give that civil servants the utmost credit at all levels of government who try and you know, bring things together to get the best solutions and outcomes for citizens by and large, um, it then is snookered at the end by you know, the politicians. And so if you have overtly nationalist politicians, or even if you look at Welsh Labour and their interpretation of, of devolution, um, you, know, you can't have collaboration because then you, know, you end up arguing even COVID response. I mean, one investigation we did see is like the PPE protocol. You know, PPE was given from central UK stocks and yet they couldn't even, you know, different parts of the UK couldn't agree about giving some back. That was Scotland specific, Wales and Northern Ireland did. So, you know, if you can't agree on things like that, that is a political problem. So, yes, I hope there can be collaboration. I think that can be achieved by more transparent um, structures establishing central government and devolved government and local government. Um, but I think where you've got nationalism, you know, sitting in different levels of government in the UK, there is going to be that competitive edge because they want to break up the country. Uh, and so, you know, and, I, and I, having been an MP that shared a constituency with a nationalist, MSP, I did try and you do try and some will work with you and some won't.
Uh, and so, you know, I think it's absolutely should be the aspiration, but I think we've got to be realistic. There's got to cut both ways. And when you're with a partner who, you know, deliberately wants to do the exact opposite of what you're trying to do, it does make it very difficult. No, that's a, that's a, that's a fair challenge. And, and I would say that in terms of greater transparency, that is definitely something the IFG would welcome. I appreciate I've now sort of got to the end of time, but I am going to give a final question to Katie, if that's OK, very briefly. Um, it's just, I mean, it's pretty short, really, is, is can the UK keep saying no to another referendum in Scotland? I think it's quite obvious that Brexit has made it much easier for the SNP to say there is a material change since the last referendum. But I think, as Luke points out, the fact that SNP is short of majority means the government might be able to push it to after the next election. But I think this is going to be a live issue, the question of Scottish independence at the next election. And that's not easy for the UK government in any way. That's, I think, a, a good summary and a concise answer. So I will leave it there. I'm afraid that we have run out of time. We tried to skate through quite a few issues. I'm not sure we necessarily pulled out that many lessons, but I think that we've done a quite a good job of summarising where things stand today and sort of the impact that Brexit has had on uh, British politics. Um, so I will just say thank you very much to our panellists. Um, it was a really stimulating discussion for me and I hope that you all enjoyed it. What I will say is if you're looking for a trip down memory lane, do check out some of our Brexit reports on the website and keep an eye out for more analysis as we continue to follow how the government approaches life outside the EU. In particular, do you read our recent report, Taking Back Control and Regulation, as well as the report I mentioned that we published today about the UK internal market that definitely delves into some of those issues we, we sort of finished on. We've also recorded a Brexit special podcast with the team where we share our own reflections on the last five years. So keep an eye out for that on your podcast streams. Um, but otherwise, I will just say thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you have a lovely rest of the day and I hope to see you at more virtual IFG live events in the future.